Welcome back to the Real Women's Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Kristen Rojas, and today's episode is about skincare and skin cancer prevention. I am absolutely thrilled to have my good friend, Dr. Nikki Dieter, with us today. She's one of my closest friends from medical school and is now a board-certified dermatologist and fellowship-trained Mohs surgeon. She's going to share with us her skincare secrets, how to treat acne, and the best anti-aging treatments. We'll also talk Botox and fillers, lasers, vampire facials, collagen supplements, and why you absolutely must wash your face at night. Stay tuned for our episode, Acne, Anti-Aging, and Skin Cancer Prevention with Dr. Nikki Dieter. Why do I have this T-shaped uterus? Excellent question. The vagina is a powerful machine. A vagina is glorious. glorious. And it's entertaining and fun, too. Because I know what's inside of girls like you and like me. Now it is time for the physical examination. Let's go take a look at your Volvo. Well, that's when we take a new baby out of a lady's tummy. Your symptoms sound hormonal to me. I'd like a second opinion. This seems very questionable. I'm Dr. Kristen Rojas, and this is the Real Women's Health Podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm here today with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Nikki Dietert. Dr. Dietert, hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited. Dr. Dieter is a fellowship-trained Mohs surgeon and a board-certified dermatologist. And we went to medical school together. And so I definitely know how smart she is because I always tried to study with her to make my grades better. So, so Dr. Dieter, tell us a little bit about your training. You know, we started out at UT Southwestern for medical school, and then I know you did residency plus fellowship. And so tell us a little bit about what it takes to be a dermatologist and then also what a Mohs surgeon is for some of our viewers. Okay. Well, um, to be a dermatologist, so I did a year of internal medicine and then I did three years of dermatology at um, UT Houston, MD Anderson. And then after that, I did an extra year of fellowship training for Mohs surgery, which is a technique used to remove skin cancer. I am removing it as a surgeon, and I'm also reading microscope slides that are made in my office real time. So it's frozen pathology. I read the slides. I take little by little until the skin cancer is clear, and then I do the reconstruction usually. So when patients come to you and they have like a skin cancer on their face, you want to remove the least amount of tissue as possible, right? And so that's why you want to just cut out the cancer and then you take those microscopic pieces of tissue and look at them under the microscope to make sure you don't remove too much. Is that, is that another way to say it? Yes. So it's tissue sparing. It keeps the area that needs to be removed small so I can take a smaller margin because I am checking the microscope slides myself and I can go back and take more little by little until the skin cancer is gone. And also it's very accurate because of the way we process and cut the tissue. Each time I'm looking at 100% of the margin. So the, the risk of missing something because I didn't look at that piece of margin is you know very, very low. Yeah, I've also seen your Instagram where you show us how you kind of rearrange face facial skin and face tissue to kind of cover up these little holes. And I've seen the before and afters and they look absolutely amazing. So I'm going to encourage everyone who's listening to go check out your Instagram so you can see some of those cool before and afters. I'm always like, wow, if I had, you know, hopefully I never have to go to you, but I would go to you if I had to get something removed from my face for sure. I mean, that's the ultimate compliment. <laughs> 
So you deal um, with patients that have skin cancer, but you are also um, like a regular dermatologist. So you do a lot of more fun stuff too, right? Yes. Fun stuff. I love, I love helping people with their skin because it's visible and it's such a, it's such a um, downer and really can affect your mood and personality, especially, you know, younger people, if you're not happy with your skin, because it's kind of what the world sees. So yeah. Definitely. I know that I've struggled with my skin intermittently since I was a teenager. And when it's really bad, I feel very sad. And it definitely yeah. affects how you feel. Yeah. Yeah. I know that feeling too. I had acne, <laughs> you know, from the time puberty hits. <laughs> so, you know, most of my listeners are women, probably our age, maybe in their 30s and older. So, you know, acne is supposed to be something for teenagers. So, but obviously women older than their teens get it. So how do you approach that when you have a patient uh, that presents to you with, with acne? First step in my approach, you know, regardless of age is look at the pattern and the type of acne because there are different types of acne. And if it's a lot of little whiteheads and pustules, that's called inflammatory. If it's a lot of blackheads and closed whiteheads, that's called comedonal. If it's you know, cystic and along the jawline and neck and flares around menses, then that's more hormonal. And so there are different approaches depending what type of acne you have. I see a lot of adult women with hormonal acne. So kind of not necessarily breaking out all month, but especially around their menstrual cycle, um, getting those painful, deeper cystic acne lesions on the lower face. And there are some great, there's great medication to help with that. Um, also just sort of modifying behavior. I think sometimes we make skincare too complicated and that actually can be more acne forming and more problematic than it is good. So I think most dermatologists actually like to keep things much more simple than people would expect. Yeah, I'm definitely a victim of just using too much or thinking more is more instead of keeping it simple. So maybe you can tell us like your top two or three treatments, like what you give to patients at the beginning, and then you can talk us, um, tell us some common oral medications that you give too. Sure. So I, you know, if it's not severe, I like to start with topical therapy because a lot of people are opposed to taking an oral medication or don't want to take that approach initially. There are different classes. There's uh, medications that are anti-inflammatory and help with the inflammation and the redness. There are medications like retinoids. Retin-A is an example that help uh, change the way your pores and your hair follicles mature. And so you get less plugging of those hair follicles. Um, we also have to approach the bacteria that we all have on our skin because in part acne is caused by bacteria that lives on our skin. And so using different things that um, are antibacterial or antimicrobial are helpful as well. In that same vein, oral antibiotics in short courses actually are often very beneficial. Long-term, things like spironolactone, which is a medication for hormonal acne, also used for PCOS, which is kind of on that spectrum, um, is great for certain types of acne. And, you know, when acne is moderate to severe, there's scarring going on, I like to jump in and sort of halt that as soon as possible because scarring is difficult to treat and lasts longer than the acne itself. And so um, that's where Accutane, or that's the old brand name, isotretinoin is the generic name, is really, really life-changing for a lot of patients. Bronolactone actually is 
kind of uh, androgen, which testosterone is a type of androgen for all everyone listening, but it kind of helps block that specific type of hormone. But if you're thinking of getting pregnant or you are pregnant, you shouldn't take uh, spironolactone, but it can be really helpful, right? Exactly. Yeah. So we always check for that, make sure that um, different forms of contraception are being used. There are no plans to get pregnant in the near future. Absolutely want to avoid that if you are pregnant or thinking about getting pregnant. And same thing for Accutane or isotretinoin, right? Pregnancy is absolutely a no-go. Yes. Okay. So you talked about Retin-A, but Retin-A I read, and you can tell our listeners, but it helps with acne, but it also maybe helps increase collagen growth. So it can kind of help with acne, but do you say that maybe we should be using a a topical, meaning on the skin, retinoid to help with anti-aging as well? Yes, absolutely. And that's something I recommend pretty much everyone has in their skincare routine. It's something you want to use at night. It does make you a little more sensitive to the sun. And initially, depending on what type you use, it can be drying, but that is to be expected. So as long as you're using it properly and not getting overly irritated or dry with time, your skin will sort of acclimate. But it's great because it does help with pore size. It does help with acne, but also vitamin A derivatives are most definitely anti-aging. And one of the first things you should start when you're thinking about sort of building an anti-aging routine. And you get uh, one of these retinoids or retinol products um, by prescription from a dermatologist, right? Yeah. So in general, retinol is a different form of vitamin A. It has to be more metabolized to be effective in your skin. And so they don't work as quickly. They're not as potent, but those are the ingredients that you're going to find in over-the-counter products. So that's a good place to start because they're not as potent. They're probably going to be a little less irritating. When you want to step up your game, then a prescription retinoid, which is a different form of vitamin A, is going to be a little more potent, a little more effective. Um, And so the difference there is prescription versus non-prescription. The non-prescription are great, but they're not going to be as effective or potent. Okay. And what's the deal with face oils? I had some uh, readers write in and wanted to know, should everyone be using these face oils? Because they seem really fancy and maybe, but it's kind of counterintuitive. You know, if I'm prone to acne, should I really be putting oil on my face? Yes. So I would say in general, this is a great example of be wary of trends. There are a lot of trends in skincare that aren't necessarily good. In general, most oils are somewhat poor clogging or comedogenic. And so, especially if you have acne prone skin, you need to be careful. I know personally, I have to avoid oils. I get pimples when I use face oils. And you you need to check what type of oil it is and what ingredients are in it as well, because some things you just should not be putting on your face and your skin. A lot of plant extracts um, can actually cause what's called allergic contact dermatitis, where you get an itchy red rash that then has to be treated. And anytime you're re-exposed to that, then you have that rash again. And so, you know, putting a lot of products on your skin that then it gets irritated, you're putting on more, you're kind of creating more problems than good. I would say if you're going to splurge and buy a fancy face oil, maybe get a sample first and try it on your skin, a little square of your skin, see if you get a rash, see if you get irritated, see if you get acne before you commit to the product. That's a hot tip, Dr. Dieter. (laughs) That's also how I approach, you know, because as a gynecologist who treats 
um, women who are experiencing sexual health issues after cancer treatment. You know, most of my practice is as a breast surgeon, but I do some gynecology. Um, I'm always telling women to stop putting things on the delicate skin of the vulva and the vagina. Just like keep it super simple and because they can get uh, same thing, like a low level allergic reaction. So, okay, good to know. Same yeah. concept. <laughs> Yes. And once your skin is irritated, you can become allergic to so many other things. So you really do not want to start that inflammatory cascade. And when we're buying makeup, like, should we look at be checking the labels to make sure it says non-comedogenic if we're prone to acne? So you always want to make sure you get oil-free things. Is that true? Oil-free. Some preservatives use an acne um, or comedogenic. So you want to look for the words non-comedogenic. And in general, mineral-based makeups and products are going to be better and safer for acne-prone skin. Oh, that's good information. Along that same vein, do not sleep with your makeup. I don't know who else, but if it's you, you need to hear this. Take your makeup off before you go to bed. <laughs> Yes, you cut out a tiny bit. So tell our listeners one more time your big advice here. My big advice, hot, hot tip number two, take your makeup off before you go to bed. That is the number one most important thing you can do in a nightcare routine. Do not ever go to sleep with your makeup on. You know, my mom always told me not to go to sleep with my makeup on, but now you just solidified that for me. <laughs> Julie. <laughs> Okay, a couple other beauty questions that have come in. Um, this one's from my sister. Uh, she wants to know if you should be using caffeine in your under eye creams. Like, should women in their 30s be using an under eye cream at all? And then, like, what's the best ingredient to look for for someone like us? So, caffeine in under eye creams really is better for a short term effect. It probably constricts your blood vessels a little bit in that area. So if you have dark circles or puffiness, it's going to help with that puffiness and a little bit of darkness. But it's something you'd have to apply every morning and the effect is going to wear off. In terms of long-term anti-aging, caffeine is probably an antioxidant in, in some quantity, but not the most bang for your buck that you're going to get. So instead, I would look for a product that is specifically anti-aging from a skincare line that you like and you trust. Not going to be enough long-term for anti-aging. Okay, got it. So you also said um, we were talking about anti-aging, so considering a retinoid and also wearing sunscreen. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, so... Number one anti-aging thing you can do is wearing sunscreen. The sun produces free oxygen radicals in your skin. It damages your DNA and over time that accumulates. And so if you're doing anything else, you're wasting your time if you are not wearing sunscreen. And this applies to every skin type there is. Um, you should be wearing a sunscreen in your morning as a part of your daily routine. I put on my vitamin C serum, I put on um, something for pigmentation, my eye cream, then I put on my sunscreen, and then I apply any makeup that I'm going to wear for the day. Okay, so what's like the minimum SPF? And then tell us a couple of your good face, uh, face sunscreen brands that you like. In general, minimum SPF of 30, and if you're outside and sweating, you need to reapply at least every two hours. I like things that are mineral-based in general, and we can talk about that a little bit if you want to, but um, what I wear every morning is Elta MD um, because it's mineral-based, it's light, it's moisturizing. They have a tinted and untinted version. 
I also like revision mineral-based sunscreen. I have a post on my um, Instagram about sunscreens that I like, so check that out. Yes, good information. Um, I also, when I see any pictures of you like outside or maybe on the beach, you literally have like one of those sunproof shirts on with like a massive hat and like these big sunglasses. And I'm like, okay, if Nikki's doing that, then I definitely need to be wearing a big hat and wearing sunscreen as well because she's got insider info. (laughs) It doesn't matter if you tan or not. But I, I burn pretty easily. And I just find that wearing a shirt is, you know, more effective and easier than reapplying to my entire body every, you know, 80 minutes. And so I get a shirt that's cute that I like. I'm, I don't need to be in a bikini. I'm okay with that. And um, I get a shirt with UPF rating, which is UV protection factor of 50 or higher. And then I just wear that and reapply to my hands, my ears, my neck, and I wear a big white brimmed hat to also filter the sun. Okay, so should everyone be going to a dermatologist once a year to have all their moles checked? Like who should be doing that? So not necessarily. If you are young, you do not have a family history or personal history of skin cancer, you probably do not need to get your skin checked every year. However, if you have you know more than a few moles or you notice that you're getting new moles, or notice a mole that is changing, then you absolutely should get it checked. If you have a family history of non-melanoma or melanoma skin cancer or a personal history, you should be getting checked regularly. And if you have a history of tanning bed use, you should be getting checked regularly because it increases your risk of melanoma significantly. Yeah, if I could take back one stupid thing, actually, I could think of a couple stupid things I'd want to take back from being a teenager, but one of them would be not to go to the tanning salon. Me too. I went before prom, you know, I'll admit it. What can we do? (laughs) Dr. Dieter's dirty little secret. No, I know. Can't lie about it, though. (laughs) Maybe you can tell us, so there's like all these new lasers and microneedling and interesting procedures that you can get done at a dermatologist's office. Tell us about your favorite one and, you know, maybe touch on microneedling too, since we're seeing that everywhere. Sure. So it depends on your skin type. There are different types of lasers with different purposes. So if you have brown or red, brown spots, redness, flushing, dilated blood vessels, then IPL or photofacial is a great treatment for that. There's also BBL, which is similar. It's broad-based light. Um, These are not great for darker skin types. Microneedling is kind of universal. Everyone can get it, and it's collagen stimulating. So it's great for acne scarring. It's great for anti-aging. There are more aggressive lasers that um, deliver more heat and stimulate collagen synthesis. One of the most popular that people talk about is Fraxel, and sometimes that's combined with the photofacial or IPL. In general, doing one of these treatments or both, I like to do a photofacial microneedling at least twice a year, not necessarily right at the same time, um, just to prevent any red or brown spots, and then also just to give a little boost to a little collagen synthesis. So those are two great, relatively inexpensive treatments to kind of start with if you're in your 20s, 30s. 
Okay, along those lines, injections. Like if we're on Instagram, we're seeing all these pictures of like women getting injections. Like tell us the difference between Botox and fillers and then tell us maybe when is an appropriate time to start Botox and any myths about that. Um, so Botox is a type of neurotoxin. There are other brands, Xeomin, Dysport, um, Juvo is the newest one. And it's a form, a derivative of botulinum toxin delivered in very small doses. It's injected into facial muscles to help prevent them from moving and creating wrinkles in your skin. And so it's wrinkle preventing and also probably does have just a rejuvenative effect on your skin. And it's something that if you like, you have to maintain. It does not, it's not permanent. It wears off every three to four months. And so I think that's one of the myths about Botox that I encounter a lot. If I do this, is it permanent? Do I have to commit to it? Do I have to keep doing it? No, it's going to wear off in three or four months. If you like it, you keep doing it. If you don't, you stop. Um, so you're not committed to doing it forever just because you do it once. It's more effective the more that you do it, but if you don't like it, you don't have to do it again. Fillers is kind of a, a term, or dermal fillers is another word for it, of uh, substances that are injected deeper in the skin to help treat volume loss. We all use, lose volume in our face as we age, and that's what changes facial structure. We also lose bone. Our fat pads droop and become what we call atrophied. So fillers are treated, I know it's terrible. <laughs> fillers replace that volume and bone loss and help sort of refill areas that are, you know, sunken or drooping. Um, and so two totally different things. Most types of fillers used are also not permanent, but they last longer than neurotoxins. So anywhere from six months to two years in most cases. And then there's another class if you've heard of Radius or Sculptra, those are what we call biostimulatory agents. So they're stimulating, stimulating and stimulating bone or collagen synthesis. And so those are semi-permanent, but also great to use in certain areas and for certain purposes. Yeah, those are kind of like the new kid on the block, right? They're still quite expensive. They are, but they're semi-permanent. And so you're getting more bang for your buck in that sense. They're not new, but they're sort of having a renaissance. Um, Sculptra was actually invented for HIV medication related lipoatrophy. And it's being used for that reason for a long time, very effectively. But now it's being used more just in general in the aesthetic world. So interesting that they invented it back then. And that's a side effect of the medications used to treat HIV. So, oh, see, I didn't even know that. Yeah, these great medications for HIV, which is amazing, but there are side effects just like any medication. And so, um, sculpture was actually created to treat that. So you said that Botox um, is not permanent, but there's kind of not any way to reverse it, right? So what's your take on like Botox parties or maybe having your friend who recently learned how to inject it practicing on you? My take is don't do it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not permanent, but it, I've seen bad Botox so many times. Um, you want someone injecting you that knows their anatomy intimately, because even though they're not permanent, there can be unwanted side effects. If it's injected in the wrong place, you wouldn't be able to smile or, you know, lower your lip or, you know, uh, have problems with what we call ptosis or eyelid drooping. And so that wears off eventually, but still not fun. Go to a board certified dermatologist, plastic surgeon, someone that is trained extensively in aesthetic treatments.
you get what you pay for. Yeah, I remember one time you told me that, you know, because there's so many complicated muscles, there's some muscles going this way, some muscles going this way. So if you if you make some of them paralyzed, but not other ones, then it can have opposite effects. Like you called it getting spocked. So if someone has <laughs> eyebrows that are super high, like Spock on, is it Star Trek? Then you know yeah. that maybe their injector didn't do a very oh, good job. And when you see someone with Botox, that's not all the way out to the sides of the forehead and the... Um, frontalis muscle is unopposed and just raising their eyebrows and making them look spocked. Yeah. It's like permanent surprise. We don't want that. <laughs> okay. So good to know. Um, can someone ever have too much filler? Because I feel like that's a big thing now. Like we see women and their faces are very full and not very natural looking, but you can actually like get these filters on Instagram that make your face look more filled. So can there be too much? You know, I guess in general, that's a very subjective thing. In my opinion, yes. Um, there, there's a new aesthetic that is sort of the reality TV filled, super defined cheekbones, no tear trough, giant lips, you know, aesthetic. And some people want that, come in asking for that. In my personal opinion, I don't think it looks good. I think um, keeping things natural um, in general is better, but you know, some people want a super chiseled jawline or super chiseled cheekbones. There are injectors that think that is beautiful and will certainly do that and make that person happy. Um, that's not my aesthetic. I think, you know, when you start to venture into injectables, you should find someone that first and foremost is trained properly and knows their anatomy for safety reasons but also that kind of fits with your aesthetic because if you walk in and someone looks alien-esque or overfilled to you, that's probably what they think looks good. That's really good advice. I think the real art is uh, making these enhancements, but making it look like you didn't have anything done, right? A little bit at a time, tweakments, just improving, enhancing, not changing the way you look totally. You know, and, and also being able to tell patients, no, you don't need more filler in your lips right now. I think that's important. <laughs> did, did you call it tweakments? Tweakments. Oh, yes. <laughs> that's cute. I like that. I didn't, I didn't coin it, so I can't take credit for it, but. Okay, so this has all been really helpful information. Oh, I have another question. What's the deal with PRP? So if someone's getting microneedling and they're also getting their own plasma or like the, they started out as like the vampire facial, but you can actually get your blood taken, they spin it out and then is that, does that really work or is it just like more expensive for no reason? Yeah, so PRP or platelet-rich plasma is when you have your blood drawn, it's spun down in what's called a centrifuge. And then what's on top is your plasma and your platelets. It's that liquid gold I'm sure people have seen pictures of. And that is drawn up. You don't have your white blood cells or your red blood cells. And that is used for rejuvenative purposes. Um, one of the great areas is for male pattern balding in men and women. That's where it's been studied most in dermatology. And it really does for um, the right patient kind of halt hair loss progression. Um, so we inject it into the scalp to prevent more hair loss and more hair thinning. Um, but also using it with lasers or microneedling is called a vampire facial. And it just helps with healing and collagen synthesis and, you know, having more of a rejuvenative effect. 
Um, there aren't huge, you know, randomized controlled trials looking at this, comparing it to treatments without it. But in general, you know, just anecdotally in small studies, people say that there is more of a benefit when you add in PRP. So I think as long as you know, it's not going to be this, you know, be all end all, you know, totally change your skin after one treatment, but that you will see results and you're willing to commit to that extra cost. I do think it's worth it. Okay, good to know, good to know. While we're on the topic of hair loss though, you know, a lot of my followers on Instagram have undergone treatment for cancer or um, are on endocrine therapy, which is estrogen blocking medicine after breast cancer treatment in order to keep the cancer from coming back. And one of the biggest complaints they have, obviously women who receive chemotherapy have uh, sudden but temporary, but pretty complete uh, hair loss. And then women on endocrine therapy can kind of have like gradual hair loss. So how do you approach that? And any pearls for those women? Yes, so chemotherapy induced hair loss um, with that rapid, you know, shedding, unfortunately is often hard to prevent, um, even with the cooling caps and new things that are being developed. Um, but when your oncologist says that it's safe and okay, topical minoxidil or Rogaine, there are other brands, um, can be great for sort of kickstarting that hair regrowth as long as it's approved by your doctor. And then um, also Latisse or Revitalash, um, something to stimulate hair growth on your eyebrows and your eyelashes is worth starting in my opinion. So that's chemotherapy induced hair loss. The endocrine therapy is probably more like a male pattern baldness in a sense. It's hormonal. And so again, I know, it, and it's, you know, as if having breast cancer is not enough, you know, then the terrible side effects of the therapy. Um, but getting in to see a dermatologist as soon as you can is, I think, crucial. And so asking your oncologist to refer you to a dermatologist to talk about your hair loss, starting Rogaine or Minoxidil as soon as you can to kind of halt that progression. You can discuss things like PRP, other medications, which your oncologist may not want you on, um, and other topicals. And sometimes a, a biopsy of your scalp is actually useful to determine what type of hair loss you're experiencing. So you can start with minoxidil and also request a referral to a dermatologist in your area. Yeah, that's great information. You know, I think a lot of women maybe don't realize that dermatologists are experts of the skin, but that you also help tackle hair loss. And so if that's something that you're experiencing, get a referral to see an expert. Hair, skin, and nails. <laughs> okay, I have one more question. So there's all these really expensive like collagen supplements or biotin supplements on the market. Do those really help your hair grow back? So there are certain supplements formulated for hair loss with things like saw palmetto, B vitamins, biotin that are probably helpful for certain types of hair loss. Um, but you should discuss them with your dermatologist because they are not cheap. And you can take too much vitamins. Sometimes too much of a good thing is too much. And so um, you don't want to basically poison yourself by taking excessive amounts of vitamins. So make sure you review the dose that you're taking with your physician. And then collagen supplements and, you know, just based on stories, people say they help. And if you're taking them and it's worth investing in that to you, then it's basically like a very fancy protein shake, in my opinion. You're getting lots of good amino acids. 
your body digests them and targets them for your hair or skin? Probably not. But so I, I tell patients to proceed with caution unless they're already doing it and they feel like it's helping. Yeah, that's really uh, good advice. You know, on the topic of supplements, there actually was a study that came out a couple of years ago showing that patients who, cancer patients who are getting treatment for cancer like chemotherapy, who are taking all of these extra like antioxidants or other supplements actually did worse long-term. And so even though something's not a prescription, if you're getting treatment for cancer, if you're taking a supplement, you need to make sure you talk to your oncologist about it because it may actually be be going against um, the goals of your treatment and you wouldn't want to unknowingly be be doing that. If you're going through, you know, how terrible treatment is for you, you wouldn't want to be giving, um, taking something that can make it less effective. So yes, in general, I always go through supplements and vitamins with patients because people do not put them on their medication list. If you are taking orally, then you inform your doctor that you're taking it because it could affect your care. Like you said, it can be counterproductive. This is great information. There was one more question that someone wrote in and it had to do with getting a rash after chemotherapy. Like sometimes the medication Herceptin can cause this rash. So do you have any recommendations for that or what should they do? I do, yeah. So I think one person said, is it my diet? Is it my skincare routine? And it's not, you know, you can do all of those things properly. And that class of medications often still causes a pretty severe acne-like rash that is, you know, terrible to experience. And there are things that can help. So you can start with gentle over-the-counter acne medications like a face wash with salicylic acid. Um, But often oral or topical antibiotics are indicated based on the severity and help significantly with controlling that rash. And so again, if you're experiencing that, it's common. It's a side effect of the medication ask to be referred to a dermatologist so that it can be treated because there are things that we can do so that you do not have to suffer through that. Good to know. Um, There's a couple more myths I think that we had. Oh, I remember. Some of them are related to acne, so backtracking a little bit. But can certain foods make acne worse? Um, Yes. The answer is yes. We know there have been studies showing that probably cow's milk whey protein makes acne worse. So if you consume a lot of cow's milk and don't have acne, then great. But if you do and you drink whey protein shakes or drink a lot of milk, probably cheese is okay. But in particular, if you're drinking a lot of cow's milk, I would um, reduce your intake. And then high glycemic diets. So things with a lot of sugar or processed carbohydrates that are going to spike your blood sugar will be more acne forming and inducing. And I know I personally experienced this. If I, you know, indulge too much, I'll probably get a pimple. So if you are struggling with acne and want to help by managing your diet in general, plant-based, you know, whole nutrients, um, are going to be more beneficial. Yeah, that's just one more reason to avoid overly processed foods because I feel like they're not very good for you anyways. Not, not really for anything, any part of our body. And our skin sometimes is just the signal, hey, there's something going on more, more internal. There's inflammation or whatever else, and your skin is what's telling you. So you might be getting acne, but it's also saying, hey, this is happening. Modify. Yeah. One other question that someone asked is, should, if I have a pimple, should I pop it? 
No, <laughs> pimples will resolve. Treat them with topicals. See a dermatologist. Don't wait because the longer you wait, the more scarring you can potentially get. But picking and manipulating one introduces more bacteria under the skin and can make it worse. And then also picking often causes scarring. Yeah, hard not to do, but try to keep your hands away from your face. Yes. So one last question. Um, I have seen a lot of advertisements for facial products that block blue light from your computer screen or your phone. Is that a real thing? And should we be protecting ourselves from blue light? I mean, maybe. <laughs> some visible light probably causes some damage to our skin. We don't know. There, there's not enough research yet to say with evidence that that is the case. And sometimes we use visible light to treat certain skin conditions. You know, there are lights to treat acne, blue and red light, treat inflammation. And so I'm, I would say undetermined on that, but I wouldn't spend a bunch of money um, on those products. I think there are other things you can do that are way better for your skin. And there are actually some sunscreens now that are blocking a more broad spectrum, like mineral-based sunscreens that you can wear as part of your daily routine if you're concerned about that. Okay, great. So let's finish up with one piece of advice that's the most important piece of advice you would give uh, me or your family members, and we're all going to get it for free. So go. <laughs> I mean, I feel like we kind of already went over this, but you know, wash your face at night, take your makeup off, protect yourself from the sun. I will be screaming this from the mountaintops <laughs> until I'm gone because I treat skin cancer every day. And it's, you know, all ages, all skin types. It's just amount of a, a product of the sun. I remove eyelid tumors. You know, I've seen the most terrible things because of the sun. And so protect yourself from the sun. Also, it's anti-aging. So don't go out and lay in the sun. Do not tan. Do not sunbathe. It's just not worth it. Gosh, you're like the harbinger of doom. So everyone, <laughs> everyone wear your sunscreen. Uh, drink lots of water, get plenty of sleep, and take your makeup off at night. <laughs> we all know. Do the things that you know are good for you. <laughs> yeah, hot tip. Hot well, Dr. Dieter, it has been a real pleasure and an honor. I'm thrilled to have you for this interview. Thank you so much for your expertise and your time. I know people are going to love listening to this, you know, not only women with a history of cancer or currently undergoing treatment for cancer or worried about getting cancer, but women just looking to, you know, follow healthy habits with their skincare routine. So um, for everyone that's watching or listening, I want you to go to Dr. Dieter's Instagram and I will post it um, below in the text of this or highlighted on the podcast website. And Dr. Dieter will also have a special announcement coming up. She's currently practicing in Austin, Texas. So if you're in Texas, go see her. Um, and she will be um, updating her Instagram with practice relevant information soon. So go follow her now. Thank you, Dr. Rojas. I'm so happy to see you, my good friend from medical school. Did you ever think we'd be here today doing this Zoom talk? Um, yes and no, <laughs> but I'm so glad we are. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Dieter, and um, everyone out there, stay safe. Bye. Bye. 
You can follow my good friend and colleague, board-certified dermatologist, Dr. Nikki Dietert on Instagram at Dr. Dietert, that's D-I-E-T-E-R-T on Instagram. Thanks for joining us on the Real Women's Health Podcast. For more women's health-related information, you can follow me on Instagram at Kristen Rojas, MD. That's K-R-I-S-T-I-N-R-O-J-A-S-M-D. For questions or comments, you can email me at realwomenshealth at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, you can like or rate the podcast on any of your favorite podcatcher websites. If you didn't like the show, we can talk about that later. Please remember that all information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. The information is not intended to recommend the self-management of health problems or wellness. It's not intended to endorse or recommend any particular type of medical treatment. Should you have any healthcare-related questions, promptly call or consult your own physician or oncologist or healthcare provider. I do not have any relevant commercial or financial relationships disclosed relevant to this podcast. Until next time!